Well, good morning again. And we are going back into the book of Jude. Uh, before we begin, I'm going to uh, just precursor this up front. We're going to be looking at some literature that you may or may not have heard of before. And I'm going to try and be as clear as I can about it and the nature of the literature. Because uh, if you look at, uh, again, with Jude, and we've talked about this before, but if you look at certain biblical commentaries, even amongst evangelical scholars, they'll, they'll reference the, the works like the ones we're going to look at. Um, and in light of that, there, there's also a, a hermeneutical issue that shows up if they're saying that Jude cites these kinds of literary works. Because, um, and I've mentioned this at a, a few weeks back, uh, within secular academia, whenever you have a piece of text out of the German school, out of the more liberal thinking schools, what, the first thing they try to do is find the precursor text that informs that person. So... Uh, that, that denotes two things. One, that that author has no original idea. And so they look for a precursor text that he was informed by. Eventually, if you start working your way back, though, there has to be what? A first idea, right? And so it, it brings that into question. But secondly, um, what it also does is it creates a, a logical fallacy, so to speak, that because the author didn't have an original thought, which is an incorrect premise, uh, that they must be pulling from source data that predates them. Um, and that's not necessarily true. And the source data that you see or find may not, in fact, be the source that they pulled from if they did. And so when you look at a uh, uh, history of religion and uh, comparative religion that was in the early 20th century, that was a huge uh, trend in academia was uh, comparative religion, comparative literature, uh, they always try to find the source data. However, given their limited amount of sources back then, some of the conclusions they arrive at is not necessarily true. And so uh, around the book of Jude, this has happened uh, actually back to the time of the uh, 4th century church. There are uh, Christians in the 300s that even advocate for this. Without much of a history behind it, um, operating in the same idea is that there must have been a source data. This is the closest one we could find. Therefore, Jude was reading from this. So keep that in mind because we're going to actually try and clarify this. We've had this once before in the book of Jude, and I'll show you where that was, and we did talk about this. Um, but before we begin, let's just do a recap of the composition of Jude. So we know that Jude, and I say this with every sermon, but we're going to see this uh, even more so today, that he's well-versed, and pay attention to this first bullet point, that he's well-versed in Jewish literature and stories, both the Hebrew scriptures and extra-biblical Jewish stories. And by extra-biblical, they can be, in effect, true, but they haven't been recorded in the corpus of scripture up to this point, up to him. So he may be the first. Um, and he's seen, and we know from the content of his letter, we've seen false teachers infiltrate into the assembly throughout his time as a follower of the Messiah. That's going to be really important at the very end uh, of what we're going to cover today. He's seen leaders of his people, false followers of Torah, commit terrible acts of violence. And we've seen these examples of biblical departure. So he's given examples in the ancient world and at the time of Sodom and Gomorrah of what happens with departure and the, um, the uh, diversion into uh, violence as a result. So rebelling against God actually turns into attacking the image of God and turning into uh, outright chaotic violence. So in verse 3, and this is his central uh, 
thesis statement, so to speak, for the church. He says, Beloved, although I was making all diligence to write to you concerning our common salvation, I had necessity to write to you, exhorting to struggle or contend earnestly for the faith that has been, been delivered once to the saints. The Hagioi, so the saints. Keep that in your mind. So we've been talking about the struggle and the contending earnestly up to this point. However, I want you to keep what he says on the last line in the back of your minds as we move forward. Because when we get out of the, the, the mire of the literary history around Jude, we're actually going to arrive at what he's actually saying in the verses we're going to look at today. But remember this, that has been delivered once to the saints or the holy ones. This is the contrasting group. So we have the saints and we have the contrasting group, these men who have entered stealthily, those who were long ago transcribed for this judgment. And here's their name. What what does he call them right here? Irreverent ones. You see that? So these are the irreverent ones. It's very important that we take into account that he's calling believers in the church, what's he calling them? The holy ones, right? The saints. What's he calling the men who are spreading false teaching? The irreverent ones, right? So you have holy ones, irreverent ones. Keep that as we go, okay? So what does he call Jesus? He calls Jesus the curion, and what do we say the curion or the curios or he who led them out of Egypt? Who does Jude say the Lord was that led them out of Egypt? Jesus himself, right? Okay. So he who manifests God physically to humanity in physical form is the pre-incarnate Christ. And he just says outright, it's my brother, it's Jesus. And this is where we were the last time we were together. So he goes through this entire diatribe from verse 4 to verse 11, uh, sorry, from verse 5 to verse 11, talking about what these men are in comparison to the ancient world. So this act of rebellion, this mindset of rebellion, he's saying it's not original to what you guys are experiencing. This has happened in the ancient world. This has happened to Sodom and Gomorrah. They were judged for this. These individuals will be judged as well. And then in verse 12, he says, these men who are hidden rock reefs, and we talked about if you've been to Harkness, the rocks that are just under the tide, if you try to take your boat out, it'll take out your hull. So it's funny to watch kayakers leave from Harkness because eventually if they don't know that, they just go boom and stop. And um, I made a lot of good business fixing kayaks when I worked at the marina because they would go out into the rock reef. And he says, those people are, are like that. They're sitting under the level of the water. They're not easily seen. And they're at these agape feasts. They're feasting together with you fearlessly. Uh, they're tending for themselves. But then he says they have no purpose, right? He says they're clouds without water. They're clouds that don't bring rain. And they're just carried along by the winds. They have no purpose. Autumn trees that don't bear fruit. They, the trees don't serve a proactive, productive function. They haven't been died twice. Wild waves of the sea. So they bring up destruction, casting up their shame like foam. And then it says they're wandering stars. And this is very interesting because for a Jew, when we look at our lunar calendar, for every month in the calendar, for 360-day calendar, each month is 30 days long. And guess what sits over your head each month? A constellation. There's 12 constellations, right? What do the wandering stars represent? Things that have no purpose. So in our months, we have these constellations that when it comes over in the sky, we go, okay, it's the month of Nisan. Okay, it's the month of, of 
I'll name another, you know, any other Hebrew month, right? So there's a constellation and there's positions in the stars where there is created order. And we saw that in Genesis, in uh, Genesis uh, 1 verse 14, that the heavenly bodies were placed in, in place to denote the Moedim, the appointed times, which we know is the Hebrew holidays, according to Moses later in his book. So he says, these guys are wandering stars. They have no purpose. They're neither here nor there. And he says, black darkness has been reserved forever. And then we talked about this agape feast, right? So we know it was a communal meal shared by early Christians. It's a time of fellowship. False teachers were sneaking in. So why would a Pharisaic group, if this is the church in Jerusalem doing this with Jude, which we know he's in Israel, why would they sneak into these events? Um, we do have evidence that uh, Pliny the Younger wrote the uh, Roman emperor in the early second century saying that they prayed in the morning and had this agape meal in the evening. And we also know that they took communion after the meal before 250 AD. So very much like uh, Passover dinner, right? And after 135 and the, the branching away from anything Jewish in the church started to become taboo, this seems to have fallen apart where Eucharist and communion was separated from having evening meals. And there's still uh, Christian groups like uh, Moravian Christians, East Orthodox, Roman Catholics, some Anglican groups, they still have agape meals, but it's not associated with the communion anymore, with the Eucharist. And so pre-135, we know this happened. We know this happened. There's enough evidence in church history to show that this happened. So originally, it probably looked like the top, right? You're eating together at the end of the meal, which is exactly when Jesus would have done it in the Gospels. At the end of the meal, there's a loaf of bread that's broken, which if those of you who came to Passover Seder, that's the afikomen, right? And then the sharing of the cup, the cup of redemption. So this became a, it seems to have become a regular practice amongst Christians of the first century, that they didn't just do it at Passover. They probably did it Whenever they met together, they had a meal and then remembered the way Jesus instructed them to. On top of that, if you're a Jewish, you would also have it on Passover, right? You would still have that at the end of the meal. And so this separated after 250 AD, but it's very interesting because if you have false teachers in Israel concerned about this Jewish sect, this newly formed Jewish sect, spreading that Jesus is the Messiah, what does that look like to them? Oh, and you're letting Gentiles in too. Looks like a manipulation of Passover, right? Their cause for coming in, whether right or wrong, their cause for coming in, the motivation to come in is that they're doing this thing like Passover. And they, con they say that constitutes a problem. It's not, one, it's not on Passover, Two, they're doing it all the time. Three, they're saying this Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah. This constitutes a problem for the Pharisees. So against this backdrop, Paul's teaching starts to make sense. Where he says in 1 Corinthians 5, celebrate the festival. Right? It's not just on Pesach, on Passover. He's saying anytime you meet and do it with no, with no leaven. Right? Your boasting's not good. So don't have the chametz when you're there. Don't have the leaven. In the same book, 
1 Corinthians 11. He gives you a construct, and if you look at the ordering of 1 Corinthians 11, what does he call out first? The Lord's evening meal, right? As 1 Corinthians 11 progresses, what does he discuss? The breaking of the bread and the cup. You see that? If this is chronological in light of what Corinth was improperly doing, it actually supports the idea that they sat and ate an evening meal, and then they broke the bread and drank the cup. Now, if you have a group of Jews and Gentiles, are Jews used to doing this? Absolutely, right? Do it on, you do it on Shabbat every Friday evening, you know, but having it with Christians over at your house and bringing the food, and they were depriving people of that food. They were starving slave caste people who were getting the, to, to the meal too late because everyone was snatching the food up, and Paul says to them, what does he tell them to do? This is what the dad tells the kids when you go on the road trip, right? Daddy, I'm hungry. You're 20 minutes into the trip. What do you say? Every parent says this. Should have eaten before we left, right? We're 20 minutes in. We're not stopping at Wendy's. So you have this progression that these, in this construct, these teachers, these false teachers would have wanted to get in there and undo it and correct it. We even have in the book of Colossians, Colossians 1 and 2, it says that there's people trying to get in there and correct things around appointed days, feasts, times, months. Who would care about that? If you're in Colossae and you're a bunch of Gentiles celebrating things Jewish along with some Jews uh, uh, fellowshipping with you, who's going to come and correct that? A Roman priest? Does a polytheistic Roman priest in the first century care? Not so much, right? So we we have an issue in the first century of false teachers wanting to infiltrate this early sect that were doing something that was very Jewish, confessing Jesus of Nazareth as the Messiah, and they're like, we're going to go in and break this up. We're going to break this up. And this still happens today. There's still false missionaries in Israel that they send in, anti, literally anti-missionaries. The ultra-Orthodox will come in and try and break up Messianic gatherings where they also have Arab Christians coming and fellowshipping with them. And they will come in and try and break that up. So he says in 12 and 13, that's where we were, that they try to get into these agape feasts. They infiltrate it. Uh, Jude says they have no purpose being there. What they're doing is purposeless. And he continues with this, and this is where we're going to be at today. So in verse 14, if you have your Bibles, he goes right into this after verse 13, saying they have no purpose. He curveballs us again with another statement from uh, a character in the Torah, but we're going to see the problem is that what he says here is not in the Torah. So it was about these men. So who are these men? False teachers, right? It's about these men the purposeless men entering your agape feast that Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied saying, behold, the Lord has come with thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all, to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds. And this is Nasby, uh, which they have done in an ungodly way. You see that repetition of ungodly over and over again? Same word as irreverent in verse four. So pay close attention to that. Uh, Of all their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things, which the, again, ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Uh, 
So we have this statement from a man named Enoch, who, according to this, says he's the seventh generation from Adam, the first man. And we know that Jude has been hanging out in the Torah quite a bit, but then he pulls this. We don't really know where from, like, and that's what we're going to look at next, is that he pulls this statement that Enoch supposedly says, that the Lord has come with many of his thousands of his holy ones. So why would he put this in here is the big question. So uh, one of the questions that we see a lot is, uh, or one of the statements that we hear a lot from scholars is that this came from a book called the Book of Enoch. And that this, this must have been what the New Testament author, because this text existed before Jude was born, this must be the text that he was pulling from when he cited this. That's the claim, right? So there's this book called the Book of Enoch. So let's look at Book of Enoch real quick, because if you haven't seen the Book of Enoch before, um, I don't want you going home and going to the Book of Enoch and thinking, oh, Jude must have pulled from this. But it is Jewish literature, but it's the placement of Book of Enoch in relation to the prophecy of Enoch here is the thing we have to clarify today. So the question we have to ask, is the Book of Enoch a kosher book? In the sense that, is it clean? Is it holy? Is it something God gave to Enoch as a prophet? Back here it says Enoch prophesied, right? So that makes Enoch a prophet, right? His prophecy's pretty short, but he's still a prophet. But this Book of Enoch... It's massive. If you haven't seen the book, it's 100 chapters. And so it's also called First Enoch. So these are some things about the book. So it's also called First Enoch. There's actually three different books of Enoch. There's a First Enoch, Second Enoch, and Third Enoch. The one that is typically discussed that goes back to the Second Temple period in Judaism is the book of First Enoch. So Second Enoch is another book that's written in Slavonic. So it's much later. It's a Slo- like Slavic church. It's, it comes from that period. We don't have anything before that in another language. They claim it came from Greek, but we have no textual data for that. So this is probably early, early church and a lot of mystical stuff coming into this book of Second Enoch. Third Enoch is Hebrew, and it's rabbinic legends. It's very late. It's probably from 500 A.D., 400 A.D., somewhere around that period. And it's written in Hebrew, and it's written in Eastern Hebrew. So it's very much a rabbinic text that has, we know has been attributed to this person of Enoch before the flood. First Enoch is the, the one we have to really question because it does show up in the Dead Sea Scrolls and in the Second Temple period. So the claim is that it's allegedly written by Enoch. So this text was allegedly written by Enoch. Zero proof of any literature at all from the world of the ancients. We have no books that Noah took onto the ark. They don't exist. We have no proof of that. Uh, So there's zero proof of that from the ancients. We do have stories and accounts, but who gives us those stories and accounts? Moses in 1446 to 1406, right? Our written account is Moses. So we have stories and accounts of the ancient world, but we don't really have a book. There's no textual survival outside of that which is redacted into the Torah. So do we have pre-flood literature? No. Moses was the first known to write a prophetic book, an actual text book. But these accounts he had access to, we know that because he had access to understand and know the dialogue between God and Abraham, the dialogue between God and Isaac and Jacob, the dialogue between God and Noah, 
we have these accounts, and they, how they were passed, we don't know. But we do know they were redacted into the Torah. When, when, when Moses wrote his book, it was redacted into that. And Moses is the prophetic standard, right? It says that in Deuteronomy 18. He is the prophetic standard. He's the prophet who spoke to God face to face, and only one other prophet was going to have that uh, interaction with God apart from Moses. That's a messianic prophecy. Around Enoch itself, so the idea that Enoch wrote this book is really sketchy out of the gate because uh, the earliest copies we have are 2nd century B.C., so thousands of years later. Uh, the copies we do have, and this is Dead Sea Scrolls and uh, the Ethiopian uh, Coptic Church, we have them in Ar Jewish Aramaic, which we know that's post-exile, so that's a red flag. That means it's post-400 B.C., uh, we have it in Greek, we have it in Koine, we have pieces of it, and Gez. And Gez is a, uh, if, you, if you've been to Israel and, and have seen Ethiopian Jews, they use that as a liturgical language, and it is related to Hebrew. Um, I won't get into the story of the Ethiopian Jewish community, but long story short, the Queen of Sheba that was in love with King Solomon, they supposedly had a child. She was from Ethiopia. She established a God-fearing kingdom. And whatever Semitic language they spoke became the Gaz language. So they spoke a sister language in 1900 B.C. to Hebrew. And she supposedly took Levitical priests down there and opened up a separate group. And Israelites moved there to that Ethiopian community. Do we have any evidence of Ethiopian God-fears in the New Testament? Book of Acts, right? Why does an Ethiopian eunuch in Israel with a copy of Isaiah scroll? there was a God-fearing community down there and supposedly Jews had moved there over the centuries. So they had this, but it probably circulated from the Second Temple period down into Ethiopia and was embraced by that community. And we know that because it's in Gez. So it's not cited in any classical Jewish texts. So outside of the work of Enoch, you don't have a rabbi citing Enoch as an academic work. So the Middle, Middle Ages rabbis, the Talmud, they don't really cite this work. They cite Third Enoch that they wrote later, but First Enoch they really didn't. So all three of these language are, languages are after the Babylonian exile. So you're already 1,100 years separated, so to speak, from the Egyptian captivity and thousands of years separated from Enoch, right? So... So the idea of the authorship of Enoch is, uh, is next to impossible. Uh, the other thing that, that I noticed about uh, first Enoch, there are no Hebrew copies. So the language spoken by Israel before the exile exclusively, there's no copies like the Hebrew Old Testament in those prophets bringing forward in the Hebrew language. There's nothing about Enoch in Hebrew at all. So that's a, that's a good sign that it has to be a post-exilic work because the prophets, they continued to be rendered into Hebrew. They weren't translated into Aramaic for the people. Uh, it was translated into Greek for the Hellenistic community, but the original Hebrew comes forward after the exile. There's no evidence of Hebrew in Enoch existing pre-exile or in Hebrew in general. <clears throat> so the only people, and I said this, the only people who consider this book sacred are two sects of Coptic Christians um, who have about 81 books in their Bible. Uh, the Ethiopian Jewish community eventually did not embrace it. So they may have moved it there, but the only people that embraced it were the Coptic Christians. Uh, the content is very apocalyptic 
and it's over 100 chapters long. It's a very big work. Um, in truth, it's a compilation, and this is really important. It's a compilation of several books, okay, compiled together. And one of the things I left out of here is that it cites, the book of Enoch cites the Old Testament prophets. So the book of Enoch cites Isaiah. The book of Enoch cites Jeremiah. The book of Enoch cites Ezekiel. Red flag, right? That it has citations from the later uh, prophets that would have come after Enoch. So we know this is a compilation. Um, and in the time of the intertestamental period, there was uh, several books that were written as like embellished uh, epics, so to speak, of Jewish history to make it entertaining for the Jewish community. Um, and so the book of Tobit, does anyone grow up in the Roman Catholic Church heard of the book of Tobit in the Apocrypha? The book of Tobit was a play. A lot of people don't realize that, and your priest won't tell you that, but the book of Tobit was a Hellenistic Jewish play performed at the amphitheater in Jerusalem in the intertestamental period. So it was an embellished, like the same as, think of Julius Caesar, like it's just literally performed on a stage and recorded in a book. And this may have been something similar, that it was compiled, all these epic stories where they're embellished on top of the Bible. Um, you know, and uh, w these are some of the examples, like the Nephilim that we read about in Genesis 6. This story names 10 angels with Hebrew names that had these 200 angels in total with them. And they're the ones that cohabited with the women. And they became violent. They killed humans and animals and ate, ate the humans and ate the animals and drank their blood. You can see that they take the story and just make it almost like a horror film, right? Uh, one of the ten of these archangels is the one that teaches men blacksmithing and technology, basically like the Prometheus idea of bringing fire to mankind from the Greeks. And the fallen angels themselves, these 200, are called the watchers because they take too much of an interest in humanity and what humanity is doing. So it's a very embellished story right? Um, did anyone see this movie? Anyone see the Noah story? What'd they call the angels in the movie? Yep. They're called the watchers. When they're sitting up, in, up outside of uh, planet earth and they're these floating light thingies and they get cast to earth and they become these giant tree beard, Lord of the Rings type creatures. Ridley Scott did not invent that in his script. Guess what he was referring to? It wasn't the Bible. He took the book of First Enoch, or whoever the script, screenplay writer was, and wrote this stuff into an embellished sci-fi, so to speak, with Russell Crowe. So you're getting a really good portrayal of Enoch with the Noah movie. A lot of this comes from First Enoch. Um, and it's, don't, don't get me wrong, it's really cool to see the water come up out of the ground and flood the earth. I mean, the biblical, biblical account does say that happened. The rain starts... That happened. It's really cool to see them building the uh, ark. But the fallen watchers did not help Noah build the ark. The fallen angels were too busy trying to kill Noah with their progeny in the biblical account, right? They didn't help him to get forgiveness from the creator. That's where it goes off, off the rails, so to speak. So this is a big embellished story. And... Um, I always say it's the ancient account of what Hollywood does with anything related to history, right? Any Hollywood movie, what's the first thing? You, guys, what's the first thing we do after watching like a war film? I do this. I walk out. Hey, it didn't really happen that way. 
Everyone's shaking their head, yes. <laughs> like, Valerie hates going to the movies with me because as we're watching a war film, I'm like, it couldn't have happened that way. And, uh, and she, I get one of these. Um, so, like Jurassic Park, it didn't happen that way. No, I'm kidding. Um, but no, you, this is very much the embellished idea, embellishing the story, right? And this book is based around it. Now, why do I bring that up apart from... Russell Crowe making a lot of money doing it. Does Jude reference First Enoch? That's the big question. Because to the scholastic world that's trying to look for a previous written source, guess what they go to? It predates Jude. He must have been referencing First Enoch. So I just stacked the two passages on top of themselves, Okay. The highlighted yellow is the only overlap there is. Okay? And we're going to look at this in English in just a second. But do you see already that the Jude passage is shorter? See how it's shorter overall? What Enoch says in the book of Enoch, it's the same prophecy, so to speak, but in text criticism, what is typically the more accurate reading? apart from like doing really in-depth criticism, what's the first thing we look for? Shorter rendition, right? Which one's the shorter rendition? It's Jude, right? Out of the gate, that should be a red flag. Enoch, first Enoch 1.9 is inherently bigger, which means that he did what? The author did what? Most likely added to it. He embellished it. He did this. Okay, so that's a, that's a red flag. The only problem we have is a matter of dates. Jude comes after Enoch as far as uh, the generation of the text in circulation. So Jude's first century, Enoch is probably second or third century BC. But the question of source data, which one is shorter? Jude, right? So he's, he may be citing something that is more original. Here's the English, and I want you to see these stacks. So here's Jude 14 and 15, and this is 14b, where the, the quote of Enoch begins. And I translated uh, Enoch 1.9 underneath. But pay close attention to what this says. So Jude 14.15, this is uh, verses 14 and 15. This is Enoch's prophecy, according to Jude. Look, or behold... And it says, Kyrios, Adonai has come with myriads of his holy ones. You see that? To make judgment according to all. And then I put it back into the irreverent uh, semantic terms of uh, verse 4. And to convict all the irreverent ones. Because remember, Jude says he's talking about these men. Irreverent ones concerning all the works of irreverence, which they profanely did. And concerning all the harsh things irreverent sinners have spoken against him. So that's Jude's base statement. Okay? So who do we have as demographics, so to speak, in Jude's statement? We have who? The Lord? You see that? We have Adonai. Who's the second group that he talks about? The holy ones. You see that? Holy ones. And then the, what's the third group that's getting the judgment? The irreverent ones, okay? Has Jude consistently used that throughout his letter? You have Curios, you have the holy ones, the saints, you have the irreverent ones. What does Enoch say? Behold, he comes with his myriads and his holy ones to make judgment according to all, 
and to destroy, does Jude say destroy? Destroy all the irreverent ones? Does he say, and to convict all flesh of the works of their irreverence? No, right? Jude's very specific. It's the irreverent ones who will receive this. Does all flesh receive this? No. Which they profanely did, so you can see the overlap, and all the harsh words that they spoke, and about every slander of the irreverent sinners. You see what he adds? What is he first, what's the first thing he separates? He has myriads, right? And then he has holy ones. You see the separation? Jude says it's myriads of his holy ones. This one says there's two groups. And then the irreverent ones also are supposed to be what? All, all flesh. You see that? So for Enoch, for Enoch, can flesh, is there any form of flesh that could be considered holy? This is really important for understanding the book of Enoch. There is a contrast in Enoch between that which is spiritual and that which is fleshly, but there's, no necessar- there's not a necessary redeeming of flesh in Enoch. That's important. What does that mean for Enoch? What's called into question that's a really common Jewish confession and Christian confession? What's the one thing that we all confess? Resurrection of the dead, right? Is there a redeeming of flesh for Enoch? No, there's not. There's the spiritual beings of the elect that are the holy ones of heaven, but they're contrasted with everything going on earth to where all flesh gets destroyed. You see the difference in the story between the biblical narrative? In other words, with Enoch, this really couldn't happen even though Noah was saved. The theological premise of Enoch does not uh, coincide with the narrative of Noah where flesh is saved. That's a problem. So we have a bigger embellished version in Enoch. That's a literary issue. We have that Jude in Enoch's quoting Enoch says that there's myriads of his holy ones and then there's the irreverent ones and then there's God, right? These myriads and his holy ones in Enoch seem to be something separated from flesh, which is not in the biblical narrative, right? There won't be a, there's not physical uh, glorified state for these people. They escape the flesh, and then flesh is destroyed. So we have to ask, where did Jude get a quote from Enoch? Right? Enoch's alive in 2500 to 3000 BC, depending on the dating of the flood, Septuagint, Masoretic text. So he's taken into heaven before the flood. And we're going to look at this in a minute. We're going to go into the passage. And that he did not die. We know that about him. And the Old Testament and the New Testament both say that. And the world as he would have known it was utterly destroyed. He was dead before the flood, but anything that was preserved and didn't make it into that, everything that, anything that would have been preserved past him, if it didn't make it into the boat, was gone. And we know already that Jude does not literarily match First Enoch or the book of Enoch. So we have the book of Enoch and we have a huge 
Labrador in the nativity scene. Right? So something's not right. Something doesn't register. Literarily, it doesn't register. Historically, it doesn't register. There's no proof of any kind of textual preservation pre-flood, past the flood, apart from the legends given from Noah down through the line to Moses who wrote them down. So we had this in one other place. You guys remember this from a few weeks ago? We were talking about Moses' death and the angels debating over the body of Moses. And there's plenty of Jewish legends that, spr- that sprouted out from the idea of Moses ascending to heaven and angels involved in his burial, because Jude says angels were there, but God buries him. But we also have this idea that Moses may have ascended and his body was taken up. And then in the Gospels, we do have an account of Elijah and Moses talking with Jesus, where? Mount of Transfiguration. And they're the same. Like, they're, they're both having conversations. And what do we know about Elijah? He was taken into heaven, right? And they're both having a conversation with Jesus. Then they disappear. So there's some kind of state with them, but they're both talking to Jesus. Peter, James, and John can see it. And then you come down to Jude 9, and we have some more of Jude giving an account through this transmission that, that came orally through Jesus and the apostles to him about uh, Michael and Satan uh, arguing over the body of Moses. So we have this coming forward, but it's a tradition that carried down through to where eventually the prophet, the apostle, the prophet of Jude, the brother of Jesus, wrote it down in his revelation. But it doesn't make it untrue and it doesn't make it historic. He's just the first to write it in the revelatory history and progressive revelation. So if we have legends from the ancient world, even the, patri- uh, the period of the patriarchs coming through, we have the prophecy of Enoch, in effect, coming through, which is very short, which means it would be easy to be remembered, right? It would be easy to remember. And it comes through Jewish history through whom? Jesus and the apostles, right? And it's transferred to on paper and writing in the Revelation to Jude 14 and 15. It's a very short prophecy. That prophecy at the same time, in just like back here, you have Jewish literature sprouting out and embellishing things that happened with Moshe. You had, at the same time, sometime in the intertestamental period, you had rabbinic and Hellenistic literature that manipulated that into this embellished story. Right? So we have the true account coming down through in scripture, you have these rabbinic accounts over here that are actually contemporaries of it that come back to a common source. We have the same thing, church, we have the same thing. Those of you in seminary, when we do textual criticism, what are we trying to establish? The original, right? From the Septuagint, from the witnesses, right? These are witnesses coming back to an original, which developed into our movie. So let's go to Enoch real quick. I want you to see this. These are the things we know about Enoch. Is that it says Yared, Jared, his father lived and had sons and daughters, and then he died, right? And it says in Genesis 5 that Enoch walked with Elohim, and it says that twice. He walked with Elohim after childing Methuselah or Methuselah, and then it says he was without because Elohim took him. Elohim took him. So the equivalent of taking this bottle and pulling it in like this. So. All the accounts before Enoch and after Enoch say that he died, except for this guy. So we know from the person of Enoch in the Bible that he didn't die. 
He has an account of something happening to him at his, his life's end. His days were not as long. He only lived about 365 years. But we know this from Genesis. He walked with Elohim his whole life. This is mentioned twice. Did not have many days on the earth. He's the great-grandfather of Noah. And he, it says Noah caused himself to walk in his generations with God as well. So he follows in the pathway of, of his great-grandfather. And Enoch is not described with Vayamot, and he died anywhere in the text. Every generation before and after is Vayamot, except for him. So what else do we know? How do we know that he did not die? Well, in Hebrews 11, it gives us some uh, clarity on what happened to the person of Enoch. By faith, Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death. See that? Was not found, so he was without because God had taken him. But before he was taken, he had this testimony. What was Enoch's testimony? He pleased God, right? And we use this passage all the time, but without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and he that is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Who does he use as another example, the writer of Hebrews, right after Enoch? Noah, right? The, the next man in the generations who walk with God. He prepared the ark. And it says he did it by faith. But then you get to Jude 14, and, he said, and Jude says this about Enoch. But it was about these men that Enoch, the seventh generation from Adam, made a prophecy. So what else do we know from the New Testament about Enoch? His testimony is that he pleases God, or he pleased God. In order to please God, he had what? He had faith, so he's a man of faith. Hebrews also confirms that he did not die. He was taken into heaven. And Jude is the first time you hear this about Enoch. He was a what? Who else was a prophet according to the scriptures? You know who else is named a prophet in the scriptures? Noah. Was he talking with God? Absolutely. Why was Noah not taken into heaven? He had to continue humanity. <laughs> so he had a purpose where he stayed. But he, they're both prophets. These men who walk with God are listed as prophets in the scriptures. So Enoch was a prophet. So what I want to close with today is what is this prophecy? What is the vision that Enoch had? And this is very important, church, okay? Because all the arguments that Jude has led up to and the reason he pulls Enoch's prophecy is very specific with relation to his own arguments in his text. And so he's integrating Enoch's prophecy into what he's saying, saying that what Enoch is saying and what I'm saying is the same. What do I mean by that? Here's the quote again. Look, behold, Adonai, the Lord has come. So who's Adonai? According to the book of Jude, who is Adonai? Jesus has come with myriads of who are the holy ones? Who are the holy ones? Verse 3 on the underneath. Who are the holy ones? The saints. Who are the saints in verse 3? The believers. You see that? When we go back to this, who are the irreverent ones? 
in Enoch's prophecy. Who's Jude saying it is? Throughout recorded history, it's all the ones that have ever blasphemed Jesus and God, and and in this case, in the church, claiming that he's the Messiah and the Lord and the Master. Do you see that? But who, according to what did Enoch actually see? When Jude integrates this into, don't miss this, when Jude integrates this into his letter, what is he saying Enoch's vision is? Jesus coming. Do you see this? Jesus coming with who? With angels? With us. Do you see that? There's no change in the terms for Jude the author. He's saying this is what Enoch saw. Who is Jesus exerting judgment on? Those of irreverence. What did Enoch see in 3000 BC, 2600 BC? What did he see? The advent of the Lord. Where else do we have this? It's Revelation 19. You see that? If this is Jesus with all of the saints, who have to be with him when he returns? All the saints, and are they dead or are they alive? They're alive. Is there any differentiation between saying they don't have some kind of physical manifestation? Does it say that? No. They're as physical as he is. His vision pre-flood during the time of absolute chaos and violence was that one day, this one whom I'm seeing will come with everyone who fears him and he will execute judgment on everyone who's irreverent. Do you see that? We have the song, Oh Glorious Day. One day he's coming, Oh Glorious Day. It's on the radio all the time. It's this. Now, one other thing to point out here. With Jude specifically, you see has come in bold. Normally, this is an aorist tense. This is an aorist uh, indicative, right? Just simple, typically simple past, simple past tense, which I had problem with because that would mean this happened in the past. Dr. Wallace, praise the Lord for his insights, in his syntax book talks about how aorist indicative can be used as an event not yet come to pass. It's one of the few instances where a past tense in Greek can be used to talk about a future event, Okay. So an author, and it says on rare occasion, he said, this is, not, this is not normal. But he uses aorist in the future to stress the certainty of the event. And involves, he calls it rhetorical transfer, verbal aspect, rhetorical transfer to the future event, something that's definitive. It's rare in Greek to do this, where you have a past tense verb for something in the future. Those of you who take Hebrew, is it common to have a perfect verb denoting something in the future? Saying, hey, this is definite, it's a pledge, it's going to happen? Absolutely. What's very interesting about this church is that if that's the case, the three authors that do this in the New Testament is Matthew, John, Paul, or I'm sorry, four authors, Matthew, John, Paul, and Jude. Both, or all four growing up in Israel, all four growing up speaking a Semitic language where this is completely normal to lead off with something that's definitive in the future saying this will happen. How definitive is Jude and, and both Jude and Enoch saying this will be? As if it has already happened. 
It is that definite. This is like the ultimate coup de grace of the letter. He's already led up the case saying that Jesus is the physical manifestation of God that led Israel out of Egypt. Jesus is the one who will judge these men. Jesus is the one that they're revoking and, get in, and trying to rebuke, saying he's not the Messiah. And what he, he, he goes all the way back to just after creation and says, look, even Enoch said that this would happen. You see that? This is our future. This is the faith that he's talking about contending towards. If you don't have that, you don't have the essence of what Jude's writing as to why he would quote something that's back before the flood. They call this prophetic uh, perfect sometimes in uh, Old Testament study where a perfect tense is used to talk about something prophetic, typically around the coming Messiah. So where do we have an example of this? And I'll close with this. Prophetic perfect. The idea of past tense and then shifting into future tense to say, hey, this is definitive, but it's in the future. Isaiah 9, I'm going to read my translation of this. We read this at Christmas. For un- it literally says, for unto us a child was, or for, for a child was born, was born to us, but we know it's in the future, so we always translate it is. But for a child was born to us, definitive. A son is definitive given to us. And then it switches to future, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and he will be called Wonderful, Counseling One, Warrior God. It doesn't say Eternal Father. It says Father of Eternity in the Hebrew text. And Sar Shalom, Prince of Peace. So how definitive is the return of Christ? Just as definitive as his birth. As the rightful heir of David. Upon the seat of David, he will rule. Right? Let's pray together. Father, we love you. Father, I pray that this sticks to the minds and hearts of your believers in here. That they understand that these holy ones that Enoch saw millennia ago are them. Those who confess you are those who are in the vision. Lord, we are destined for this. You've declared it according to this. You've declared it since the time of the ancients. You've revealed this since the time of the ancients moving forward through all your prophets, your apostles. Lord, they went to their deaths believing it. Lord, the few that were taken into heaven and did not taste death, Lord, still affirm and get to see you now and look forward to this coming to pass. Lord, I pray this dictates our worldviews. It drives us into what we do, how we study your scriptures, that you are the Messiah, Jesus, and that you are coming and that we are with you. That is not something just in revelation, Lord. That is in the corpus of the entirety of your revelation, that you want us with you and that you fully plan for us to be there. Lord, guide us and illuminate us to your words. I ask these things in your son's name. Amen.